0: Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world.
1: Hi, I'm Denzel Davidson. I'm Global Council's advisor on EU and multilateral issues. And I'm here with my colleagues to talk through the Chancellor's big speech yesterday at Mansion House. We are joined by two of our experts, our Senior Director Stephen Adams and our Head of uh, Practice for Financial Services, uh, Rebecca Park. Uh, Now, as I said yesterday, Chancellor's first ever Mansion House speech, uh, and it was a big moment because it was a chance to look beyond the pandemic, and it was a speech very much rooted in the world after Brexit, so a sense of moving on from the past. So, Becca, can you tell us what was announced?
0: Absolutely. So as you say, this was a speech about moving on from the past. And I think, first and foremost, one of the pieces of the past that Chancellor tried to move things on from slightly was, was actually the past of the financial crisis. And there were two parts to what was announced yesterday. We had a vision statement for the financial services industry, and then we had the substance. And the former communications professional that I am, I'm going to start with the vision statement first, and the the shiny part of what was published alongside the Chancellor's speech, which was... A Chancellor that first, of, first and foremost wanted to acknowledge the role the industry has played in the pandemic and the response from the industry and its commitment to the UK economy as a whole. And that might sound quite glib. It might feel like it's a, a tick the box exercise that you have at these set piece events, but actually that's quite an important first statement for this Chancellor to this particular part of of UK business, because the industry isn't used to those public acknowledgements of its tax contribution, its wider investment and employment contribution. And that very effusive praise that came at the speech was probably more than we have seen for quite some time from a chancellor talking to the city. And that's quite important, particularly when it comes coupled with a strategy and a vision statement. So we have a financial services industry that for the best part of a decade has been asking the UK Treasury to deliver a strategy for the industry to talk about future competitiveness, the future priorities for the industry, because in the UK, financial services typically falls outside industrial strategy policy and outside the purview of Bayes and where we see these structured reviews. And so it's something that has been lacking for a number of years. And to some respect, we got that yesterday. We got a financial services new chapter, as it's been called, which sets out the government's commitment to global trade, technology and innovation, green finance and competitiveness. But it was very focused in the rhetoric and the language around that, and possibly not as detailed as some of the industry would like. Where we did get detail and substance yesterday was on the UK's post-Brexit regulatory reform agenda. And there weren't really many surprises there, but what we got was um, a substantive update on what comes next in this multi-year program of reform. So a new review into the UK capital markets regime, um, a review looking at how we reform the UK's own prospectus regime and a review on the future of cash and the provision of cash and potential legislation on cash within the UK. And crucially for the insurance industry as well, we also saw the publication of the government's call for evidence on solvency two reforms. And a kind of clarification that when it comes to solvency two we're probably not going to see the substantive reform agenda to 2022, which is largely as expected, given recent regulatory announcements. Underneath all of this, for the Mansion House was um, probably the most substantive part of the announcement the government's commitments on green finance and sustainability. And this was a Mansion House that was positioned to fall directly after the UK's Green Horizon Summit Part Two. So, the Green Horizon Summit is an initiative between um, the Corporation of London and the government looking at the sustainability agenda in the run up to COP. And as part of that package, we saw um, the government follow up on its budgets announcements on green finance. So, a announcement around the role of a new NSI green bond, the next stage of the UK's green taxonomy, and crucially, um, clarity around what comes next on the disclosure regime, and a new disclosure regime sort of building on TCFD that looks to roll out in further detail clear commitments and requirements around what financial services firms and and broader business are going to be required from an ESG perspective. We expect the rest of the detail that sits behind that announcement to start rolling out through the autumn in the run-up to COP. But really what the, what the Chancellor wanted the British public to take away from yesterday was the green finance commitment. What he wanted the industry to take away from yesterday was the vision statement. And the substance and the detail is probably left to those that are worrying about the regulatory consequences and the compliance implications and the, and the cost of business.
1: Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, that was a pretty comprehensive description of, uh, of what he set out. Um, you mentioned openness, and it's clear that openness is a core part of his new vision for uh, British financial services. Stephen, how is the UK now thinking about international trade and financial
2: services? Well, I mean, I think one of the interesting things in some ways about this speech is that it's not obvious how it joined up the question of openness and the question of trade. In fact, where openness was mentioned in the speech, it very quickly pivoted into some fairly high-level observations about the UK's desire to continue defending uh, the the open practice of democracy. And um, we were left slightly, I think, reading between the lines when it comes to the question of how this government links openness and the question of its trade policy. Having said that, I, I I don't think there's any real surprises between those lines. And I, I think in some ways, the interesting question is um, what some of the specifics are likely to, to, to look like. Um, the thing, of course, that defines the UK internationally in terms of financial services trade is the fact that it is already very, very open. It's probably the most open, large financial services jurisdiction in the world in terms of the importation of financial services. So the question is not really how open the UK itself plans to be. And I would have interpreted this speech as a signal that the UK has no intention to revise that level of openness. The question is really what kind of openness is the UK going to be pursuing from others? Uh, there's an EU question there, which I think we're gonna come back to later. For the rest of the world, I think again, not, 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 a, not, not a lot of new strategy here. The focus continues to be on a small number of uh, peer jurisdictions Singapore Switzerland the United States which the UK sees as its um, you know essentially its its equivalents in terms of their sophistication both market sophistication and regulatory sophistication and in each case in slightly different forms there are open already open negotiations designed to deliver um, something in terms of new opportunities for export, and certainly in the Swiss case, in some ways, the most interesting case, I suspect, the aim will be to try and deliver an outcome that leverages the concept of mutual recognition, deference in some new way. And that's probably going to be the most interesting development in UKFS trade for the next few years, uh, if it it happens. Um, Again, I think some big openness questions that weren't really addressed, not directly. I would have thought that for the industry actually in some ways the big openness question for the next few years may be around migration, around access to, to talent to the way that the UK's new migration regime um, is able to flex around uh, the import of skilled FS professionals. Um, we didn't hear anything about that uh, in, in, in the speech uh, this week but I suspect it's gonna be one of the big questions for the, for the months and years ahead.
1: So, as you said, uh, we still have to talk about the EU, despite having left it, and and staying on that subject, the EU and trade. Uh, The Chancellor noted in his speech that he had previously set out an ambition to achieve a comprehensive set of mutual decisions with the EU on financial services equivalents, and that this had not happened. Uh, Do you think this is a sign of the British government giving up and pursuing a different approach?
2: Uh, I I think I think it broadly is although I think probably that that recognition actually uh, is now several months in the past and I think it probably even predates the uh, the negotiation on the MOU uh before March that was supposed to or at least potentially was vehicle for these kinds of agreements I think it became clear very quickly it was clear in the middle of last year that the the EU had no intention of um awarding a or adopting a, an equivalence determination uh, certainly for the for the MiFId mafia regime, which in many respects is of course what we're actually talking about here. I mean we need to bear in mind when we talk about equivalence we're talking about lots of different things. The EU has in fact of course adopted some equivalence determinations that are used in some ways with respect to EU exposures to or trade with the uh, with the UK. but that key question of whether the UK would be awarded equivalence under the Mafia regime is in many respects what we're talking about when we talk about uh, equivalence and i think it was clear a year ago that uh, that wasn't going to happen I, I think that the, the 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 negotiation between the two sides wasn't really on uh, the um awarding of or the determination of equivalence it was on whether it would be possible to essentially try and put a framework around the two uh, around the way in which the two sides used equivalence in the future, both autonomously, of course. But I think the ambition was to try and create a series of protocols, essentially, for the way that equivalence was determined, the way it was maintained, and uh, the way it was withdrawn. Um, And of course, even that proved uh, impossible Ultimately, in the MOU in, in March, um, or the text that we've, you know, the the the, the 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 MOU content is very very high level indeed. So, I mean, I think um, I don't think there's any question that the the, the government uh, has has given up uh, on the idea of equivalence as the foundation for or some foundation for the future relationship with the with, with the with the EU. Um, what what that means in terms of the alternative is, of course, going to be interesting to some extent just by necessity it means pivoting to focusing on a relationship that's going to be focused on the treatment of uk firms in the single market so the the, the treatment of firms that are established inside the single market as of course most large uk-based banks with eu clients now are so that's going to shift the agenda from being uh, one focused on trying to agree a possible framework for cross-border trade to one focused on dealing quite in quite considerable detail, I would have thought, with with the evolution of the EU's domestic regulatory regime, as it impacts UK firms um, located there. Um, so I, I think you know th- this was this was this was the final nail, I suppose, if one was needed uh, in the coffin of the idea that um, there was going to be some equivalence-based model for uh, for EU UK trade. And I think we now we now pivot to uh, to, to to a longer-term agenda focused on. The, um, the, the treatment of UK firms operating from within the single market. Thank you, Stephen.
1: Now, I think we should turn to
2: more domestic
1: policy issues. Um, Rebecca, what did we learn about the government's agenda for financial services regulatory form after Brexit? I mean, there's there's a big sweep of, of stuff out there, as you've already been talking about. There's cash, there's a regulatory framework review, and then there's my former boss's Lord Hill's listings review. Uh, what, did you, what are your main lessons from that?
0: So I think starting really from, from where sort of Stephen just finished off, the REG framework review that the government is currently looking at post-Brexit is now firmly enshrined in a model which is um, accepting equivalents may not necessarily be granted on many of the key areas um, they have pursued. And, and while that might be a long-term aim, in the more immediate future, it is now time for the UK to take stock of its regulatory regime, take stock of the way its regulators approach core parts of financial services, and think about what the UK needs to do differently, what the UK needs to undertake at a global level, and where the UK, like the EU and like any other sort of uh, key financial services centre, is tackling new and emerging challenges and opportunities, be that fintech, cyber, the way in which they address third party risks and, and some of these kind of new and emerging issues. And what we saw yesterday was was a continuation of the regime set up by the Chancellor in November. So the Chancellor's first major speech on financial services, Substance, came in parliament last november where he launched the hill review um looking at the uk's listings regime trying to ensure the uk remains competitive in this space but also really put extra political impetus and focus behind the already launched gleefer review and the already relaunched regulatory framework review because let's not forget the reg framework review was a philip hammond initiative that came in out of a several mansion has passed now, to try and look at the uh, way in which the UK needed to think about new and emerging challenges like FinTech and green finance and sustainability. And coming out of that, we've evolved into this multi-year review programme. And I think that's the key here. We're, we are talking about a suite of initiatives that are going to take well beyond this current parliamentary term to implement, address and adopt, to look at how the UK addresses new financial services regulation approaches. And what yesterday delivered first and foremost was the expected next steps in many of these reviews and changes so we have the markets review which is really looking at the way in which the UK wholesale capital markets regime can be recalibrated to um, improve and enhance the the competitiveness and the implementation of the UK's MiFID regime post-Brexit this was long anticipated in fact much of the technical work has already begun from within the FCA And a a suite of announcements of regulatory consultations over the last three months. And what yesterday does is it pushes it forward to the next level for where we're going to need secondary legislation, um, all those different elements. And then what we have also seen is the way in which they focused on the prospective regime and the implementation of the Hill Review. And this was the kind of probably the first thing Treasury really came out and said quite clearly on the Hill Review they were going to adopt back in February when the the original report findings were launched. And the UK used it as an example to show that they were going to do things differently when it comes to ensuring the UK remains competitive. So what was announced yesterday was really just that the next marker, next staging post in that sort of policy program to bring forward the necessary reforms, changes, and ultimately probably primary legislation to implement that. Um, But at the opposite end of the scale, what we have ended up with is a fairly critical and important consultation on cash within the UK. I think any speech by Chancellor that can span everything from central clearing through to the provision of retail cash within the UK gives you a sense of of, of kind of how broad this agenda is. And what we saw yesterday with cash was really the preparation for how to manage the the rapid decline of cash within the UK. So to put this within context, 56% of payments were made in cash back in 2010. Um, And We have now got a situation whereby it's predicted just 9% of payments will be made in cash by 2028. And that's been rapidly impacted by the pandemic. And so the government is grappling with how to shore up and guarantee the provision of that cash supply in the future so that it can remain um, commercially viable. And so what we've got is a consultation on primary legislation to look at minimum geographical standards. And the way in which they could be applied to the bank branch network, the ATM network, and other forms of, of cash provided within the UK. And what was announced yesterday has really been signalled since budget 2020. And there have been many moments along the way where consumer groups and and key campaigns in the space have been expecting the government to act. And almost this was viewed by many as the last possible moment the government could could really show progress and commitment to this agenda. So we have this detailed consultation, which comes off the back of quite significant amounts of pressure on the government from um, consumer groups to to see progress. And the government has been very clear in the run up to yesterday that it will result in primary legislation being brought forward to, to try and address this challenge and this issue. Um, so I think those are probably the, the three critical areas and elements. Um, I would, Stephen, welcome your thoughts on how you think the government is adopting some of these issues in, in more detail. And in particular, um, I know you've been looking at how they might take the markets review forward and what we might expect to see in that space as well.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think the, the the wholesale markets review component here is cl- clearly important because it's where the it's where the question of post Brexit regulatory reform and international competitiveness most obviously overlap. Um, it's the area where the kind of capital markets side of the industry has been been pushing for a, an early consideration of possible change, or at least has been pushing for that as soon as it became clear that equivalence under Mifid Mifia was off the table and I, I think it kind of it follows in some ways um, it, it, it follows from the from the from the from the from the recognition that recognition was not on the table that the UK would then pivot to considering changes to the framework that would have been the basis for an equivalence determination um, if anyone in Brussels of course is surprised that that's happening I would, I, I, I would I would suggest there, uh, that, that they 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 um, uh, that they shouldn't be. Um, I think the question, of course, is going to be how substantive this turns out to be. There there is a there is already a, a, f- a fairly comprehensive shopping list. On the table from the industry much of it i think which has been positively responded to um, by the uk government whether that's around questions around the reg perimeter or questions around um, things like the share trading obligation or double volume cap um, some of the transparency components uh, of method um, uh, i mean i think there are the, the question is going to be um, what, what can the what can the, what can the uk government achieve quite quickly in a way that will at least give the perception of enhancing, if not, you know, and ideally, of course, practically and materially enhance uh, the ease of conducting these kind of services uh, in in the UK, and deliver that quickly in a way that that signals um, something of the government's intent with respect to post-Brexit, post Brexit post post Brexit change. Um, things are going to move quite quickly now. I mean, we would expect to get um, uh, a, uh, a, a a package of proposals for um, um for, for, for consultation and this of course is going to run alongside the um the 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 second future rig framework review over the next two quarters so there's there's an awful lot of moving pieces in here and i think some things that are will be seen quite rightly as, as valuable for um for industry they're also of course going to be scrutinized quite closely from Brussels um this is going to be an area where there, there'll will be a will will they'll they'll they will be a very close interest um in, in the EU, in the UK's direction of travel. But of course, it's also um, the, the, the fact that that an equivalence determination um, under Mifid Mifia is, is off the table from the EU side and no longer being actively pursued from the UK's means, of, of course, that the, e, the EU's leverage over these questions is now considerably smaller.
1: So, um, Rebecca, one of the, I mean, we've been talking about this plethora of reviews, uh, and one of them that's out there is that of the overseas person's exemption, but that's been quite quiet lately. What's your take on where we are on that?
0: No, I think this is a really difficult one for the government to sort of, to continue to push your engagement and conversation on the a public regime. So, the review of the UK's overseas person. Um, exemption was sort of commenced at the start of this year um, to really sort of size up and understand the amount of um, international activity that was being undertaken in the UK um, as a result of of these kind of provisions that enabled um, that activity to exist here within the regulatory perimeter. Um, And there were many in the industry that had concerns when that review was commenced whether this was the UK preparing to think about how to use that OPE exemption to close it down in the future or potentially kind of uh, bring forward kind of changes to it to to limit access and if they felt it was entirely purely one way particularly if equivalence determinations and decisions weren't granted so that there was silence on it yesterday I think will have left many relieved but equally as we continue to track all the changing developments and initiatives I don't think it's something that can be forgotten and I think you know there does remain a sense that ultimately the UK will need to understand what the benefits of the OPE are for the UK and whether at any point those benefits are outweighed by continuing and enabling the regime to exist.
2: I think the question there is going to be moving on from well distinguishing between the question of whether the the OPE essentially represents a, a failure to create adequate negotiating leverage if you, if, you, if you like so the idea that the UK is very open um, means that it has less leverage with others, which which I think is a bit of a dead end. I, I don't think that it's ever been credible that, that closing the UK's market to imports would incentivize others to open their own markets. I suspect the, the bigger question, exactly as Rebecca's hinting, is how the scale of potential changed and altered usage of the OPE, now that EU firms are able to take advantage of it, might change its Implications in terms of uh, transparency and sufficient oversight of what's being imported into the UK, financial stability, uh, and sort of supervisory um, sort of a, a sense that supervisors understand uh, the the activity that's taking place under its under its auspices. So I think the industry, exactly as we said, I do think it's important that we don't we don't become complacent about the future of the OPE. Um, but I think it's also, and what I think that means in practice is that we, we need to make sure that um, we're helping supervisors and policymakers feel they have a, a, a comprehensive view of what's actually being traded under the under the OPE framework, because that's going to change quite dramatically, I suspect, in the years ahead.
0: Jennifer, I'm going to jump in here and see if I can get your views on, on one part of this. You know, the audience for the Mansion House is invariably domestic, The Chancellor was largely talking to the UK industry, but all of these issues play out. Um, more broadly, particularly um, in the within the EU as well, how do you think these developments, initiatives are going to be received and, and viewed?
1: Well, I think the EU will, as Steve has already set out. I mean, the, the European Commission and some of the largest member states, uh, one to Britain's direct south in particular, have already taken a view on how they want to see Brexit, and that is as a as a land grab opportunity, and they are trying to drag as much business from from. Brexited Britain as possible, uh, and any, other, any further developments until they think they have um, squeezed as much economic activity out as possible is simply to be dealt with as, an irre- as a rhetorical opportunity or rhetorical difficulty and uh, the chancellors talk about doing things differently, well, that will be taken as an opportunity to say, well, this is why we have to hold off uh, granting equivalence. But as we all know, at least from the British perspective, the motive uh, of not taking these equivalence decisions is fundamentally uh, protectionist. And we saw that in Mary McGuinness's uh, reaction. Uh, She responded pretty soon shows why you you have to see how things go out, the direction of travel. It's about where things are going, not where things are now. That's quite hard to justify given the EU's approach to equivalence decisions with other countries. Uh, But it it gives them enough of an argument to to claim that their position is defensible and is about um, some objective tests about how these international financial services relationships should work, rather than their interpretation of their raw
2: economic interest. Um, In some ways, don't you think it overlaps with the strategic autonomy agenda to a certain extent? I mean, it, it's, as you say, I thought, it, you know, I, I'm sure this was just pro forma, but the, the Chancellor made a point of saying that the EU would never be able to base an equivalence determination w- with respect to the UK on, or, or would never be able to deny the UK equivalence on the basis that it had weaker regulatory standards. I mean, I think we can take that as read, but it's also, of course, not the point, is it? I mean, the, the, the point is that the that is not the basis on which the EU is making these strategic judgments. The, the, the basis is the desire to pull value-added activity into the single market, to uh, ensure that important functions aren't taking place offshore, um, to, to capture as much economic value as possible, um, and that, that's, that, that's, the, that's the logic here. So
1: you're right, it, it's, it isn't just about the economics, it's also about a, a motivation of let's take back control And that's being applied not just in financial services, but they're also looking at that. pithy
2: pithy phrase. I can't remember where I
1: heard that. No, who knows? I'm sure it was always meant to be about the EU and what just happened to the EU after Brexit. Uh, But have you seen about supply chains? Um, It's about uh, their worries about payment systems uh, and how how this quite squares with the EU's belief in the importance of an interdependent world. Well, we'll just have to see how this plays out over the rest of the decade. Now, uh, Rebecca, if I can turn back to, to you, as you've said, we've had this vast range of reviews from everything from cash to central, counterparties, and when we look at just how many reviews there are, the question we've got to ask, is this a manageable agenda? Can the, will the government have to prioritise when it's going to pursue everything all at once? And what does that mean for quality control? What does that mean for political grip on this agenda? And the Chancellor's also got to keep the economy as a whole on the straight and narrow and the public finances, which is his neighbour doesn't mean to make his life any easier on that last point.
0: I think you're quite right. The agenda is massive, um, but also it's the agenda that wasn't announced or touched on yesterday. So as much as we can see the key priorities on the post-Brexit regulation, on cash and on sort of markets reform, we heard almost nothing about the future regulation of crypto assets, about central bank digital currencies and the way that the UK is going to address that. We have a treasury that's already committed to a, a new regulatory regime and legislation in that space. We are still waiting for the payments landscape review to be published, which we were all told was, was imminent in the summer. Um, and I know the public sector has very interesting long-term definitions of seasons, but um, it doesn't look like it's going to be coming in, in any form of British summer um, at the moment. But also We've still got um, huge regulatory initiatives coming out of the conduct regulator. So um, if you talk to to most in the industry right now, the duty of care review launched by the FCA last month is a a key priority in terms of how that um, focuses minds and and future regulatory changes in that space. On top of a delayed FCA business plan, um, which we're still to see this year, and also um, the wider prudential reform agenda, the implementation of Basel measures this autumn, all of that would be huge in its own right. And if you add on top of that, um, the existing regulatory framework review and the review of the regulators' responsibilities and principles, and also the ongoing response to the pandemic's economic consequences and you know, the recovery of a huge number of support schemes across the business lending landscape, but also the retail landscape, you have to ask what is going to give? Because there isn't simply enough bandwidth within HMT within the regulators to address this issue across the board, Um, even in a phased approach, we are looking at a multi-year agenda of activity, but also within the private sector itself. Even before COVID and Brexit, the regulatory implementation timelines were a stretch for many firms, both large and emerging and fintech firms. Um, You have to say that's got far more difficult. I mean, uh, the regulatory initiatives grid this year um, had another 70 initiatives on top of last year, so um, there do have to be questions asked about how wide the bandwidth is, where priorities are going to be placed and and where things are going to be phased and I think if yesterday gives us anything it probably gives us a sense of where the immediate political and regulatory priorities are from a treasury perspective and actually the amount of capital being put behind the markets reform and the post-brexit reforms is quite significant and we may therefore see other parts of the agenda progressing at a slower rate than um, some might like to see.
1: So Stephen, to to wrap us up, I mean, we've heard that there are some big policy changes uh, coming firms' way, and that which are going to have a real impact on them. So how should they be thinking about engaging with this agenda when you've got, in particular, policymakers at the political level who've already got a hell of a lot on their plates, and treasury officials who are going to be juggling a lot of balls?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think it's going to be. I mean, I, it probably goes without saying that. Um, that this is an agenda that needs engagement and it needs relatively intense engagement. Um, And notwithstanding Becker's point that we have to expect something to give, I suspect, in here somewhere, the initial challenge I think for firms is going to be to work out where, where to focus, and they're going to have to do an element of triage around what matters. And I think we're going to need to recognise that different parts of this agenda are going to need different kinds of engagement. So clearly, um, you know, the solvency two review, the wholesale markets review, these are relatively these are relatively technical reviews where the, the need is going to be for pretty focused um, uh, interaction with a with a very strong evidence base around the industry's preferred. Outcomes. Um, I think some of the kind of um, Rebecca may disagree with this, but I, my sense is that some of the kind of Im- political pressure for immediate, quick wind post Brexit divergence winds has fallen away. The tone here seems to me to be a little bit more measured, in the sense that this is a this is a serious effort to try and actually reflect on what makes the wholesale regime in the UK more credible, more more attractive for the for the medium term. But of course, I mean, I still think there's going to be some desire to move relatively quickly, partly to capture the sense of you know post-Brexit, post-Brexit change. So I, I think this is going to be there's a premium on um, on pithy consultation responses. I think this is the time for the two-page response instead of the two, the ten-page response. I think we need to anticipate uh, limited bandwidth in the Treasury and across the system in terms of absorbing the industry's views, and we need to help. Policymakers with that. I think on bigger questions like trade policy, this is going to be a moment for the trade associations. I think to probably step in um, and take some of the weight off individual firms. So you know, UKF and City UK. I think this is a at the ABI. This is a moment where they can really come into their own in terms of some of the wider international agenda, where a kind of industry voice is perhaps most useful for the UK's trade negotiators who are looking for a fairly simple interface. Uh, with the industry. Um, and I mean I guess one final observation would be that you know in in the same way that um, leaving the EU requires UK policymakers to rethink some of the UK's approaches, I think there's something similar for UK based firms as well. and I think this is a moment to to really think about how we refresh some of the core arguments that the industry has been making over the last decade or so, particularly on things like competitiveness. Because I think if we step back, we recognize quite quickly that the the way the industry has spoken about competitiveness for the last decade has been a function of being an EU member state. So the migration question, for example, the talent question looks completely different when you're an EU member state. The question of EU regulation obviously looks very different when you're an EU member state. As an EU member state, the UK's competitiveness debate focused essentially on the lack of flexibility in the EU regime. On the outside, the same conversation is going to be a discussion about alignment, non-alignment, divergence, convergence. So I, I think, um, and you know, obviously COVID as well in some ways, I think is going to prompt us to rethink some of our discussions about competitiveness, the way we manage hybrid and remote working, for example, um, digital-based um, m- models in the post-COVID. World. So I, I think that we simultaneously need to be refreshing, the industry needs to be refreshing its own arguments. It needs to be identifying the best ways to engage in these different channels of trade policy, domestic wholesale regulation, domestic retail regulation, uh, green finance. Um, and I think it's, there's going to as I say, I think there's going to be a premium on really pithy, evidence-based engagement that makes the work of policymakers and regulators as simple and easy as possible. Well,
1: Stephen, Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for today, but that's a powerful message to end on, the need for impact in a fundamentally changed landscape. Uh, I hope you'll all join us next time and that you enjoyed listening to this. Goodbye.
0: For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global council.